Please bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord one more time to ask the blessing of God on the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our hearts and minds are darkened. We are darkened in our understanding apart from your Spirit giving light to our minds and shedding light on what you mean by what you say in Scripture. We don't know as we ought to know. We don't see as we ought to see. We see very dimly now. So we pray that you would, by your grace, shed light on your scriptures through the preaching of your word, blessed by your spirit. Help us to know what Jesus means when he says he is the light of the world. May we know how to respond to that claim in faith and hope and joy and obedience. May we see light in his light. For his sake we pray. Amen. The period of the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries, as many of you know, is famous for applying unaided human reason to understand both the universe and humanity's experience in it. People call it the Enlightenment because it offered a burst of human discovery and knowledge in science, math, art, even religion. But the Enlightenment operated on a principle of releasing the human mind from the dictates of history religion and the traditional Christian understanding of God as our creator judge, of Jesus as Christ, son of God, savior. If we could throw off all the authorities of the past, we could open up broader horizons and possibilities of knowledge for the future. We could become enlightened. The less the human mind was limited by God, the Bible, Jesus, Christianity, the more free the human mind would be to discover more and truer knowledge. But of course, the Enlightenment didn't change who God is or what Jesus came to be and say and do. The Enlightenment simply rejected the biblical ideas of a personal holy God whose righteous indignation was aimed at sinners who needed to be saved from His judgment through the sacrifice that the same God sent Jesus to accomplish. The Enlightenment could not negate Jesus' own self-understanding when he said, I am the light of the world. The Enlightenment functionally simply denied that claim, or at best remained uncertain about it, agnostic about it, unable to know. Well, this morning we hope to revisit Jesus' claim to be the light of the world. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to John 8, verses 12 to 30. And in its original context, John's point in relating this conversation with Jesus' opponents is threefold. John has a threefold point. People don't know Jesus. People need to know Jesus. And people can know Jesus. People don't know Jesus. People need to know Jesus. And people can know Jesus. Jesus. Follow along with me as we read the passage in its entirety. 
Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So first, people don't know Jesus in verses 12 to 20. People don't know Jesus in verses 12 to 20. Jesus is testifying about himself. I am the light of the world. Light illumines. It warms. It reveals, clarifies, exposes. Light enables sight. And Jesus says that that light that enables the world to see, the light that enables anyone to see the world for what it is, that light is Jesus himself. We have lights on in here. Four of them right above you. Why do we have them on? Why do we turn them on? So that you can see what you're reading in Scripture. You need light to see what you're looking at. The light that gives sight, real understanding, is Jesus. And Jesus pairs the idea of light with the idea of walking. Walking in the dark is the way to stumble. Stub your toe. Step on a Lego in the middle of the night as a parent. 
You're going to hurt yourself walking in the dark. You need to see where you're going so you don't trip. And Jesus says that he alone is the light that enables you to see your way through life and through a world that ignores God and so remains ignorant of God in moral darkness, spiritual darkness. Now to have this light, you can't just read about Jesus in a book or be aware of him. Yes, you must read of Jesus in the Bible and you must be aware of him. But then you have to follow him. He must lead. He must be the one to teach and lead you through life by his word in scripture. And by his spirit in your heart prompting you to obey what you read. And to follow where Jesus leads you. You treat Jesus as the leader of your life. You aim to imitate him, to please him to walk behind him, to learn from him, to look like him, to follow in his footsteps. Psalm 119, 100 says, I understand more than the aged, not because I read your word more than they do, but I understand more than the aged because I obey your precepts. That's why I understand more, because I obey more. After all, why is God going to give you any more understanding if you're not obeying what he's already given you to know? So you don't just think about what he says. You follow his ways. That's how you get more light. And you understand more of the world, yourself, people, and God. You follow Jesus, and he lights your path to follow him. You think about Jesus walking a path, and he's the light You'd better follow him, or what's going to happen if you veer off? You're going to veer off into the darkness. What's going to happen if you slow down? You're going to slow down back into the darkness. You better stay tight to Jesus. You better be right behind him. Because he doesn't follow where you're going. You're following where he's going, or else you're going into the darkness. The light of the world, then, is not unaided human reason. Unaided human reason is actually darkness. Living by unaided reason is to live in and by darkness. So you don't get to Jesus by the light of unaided reason and decide to follow Jesus based on that light. You follow Jesus first, and he becomes your light. You see Jesus shining, and you go to him, and then you are in the light. J.C. Ryle, the old Anglican bishop in the late 1800s, knew this. He said, the man who says, I must first understand everything before I become a Christian light of unaided human reason. The man who says, I must first understand everything before I become a Christian will die in his sins. Let us begin by following and then we shall find light. See, Jesus is the one who pulls you out 
of the darkness of unaided reason into his light. But the light of the world is not even to read the Bible in a Christless way. That's what the Jewish scribes and Pharisees were doing. They were very religious. They were very biblical. They were so biblical that they weren't sure they were supposed to believe in Jesus. And they were in the dark. They were not rationalists or naturalists or postmodernists or evolutionists or abortionists. They were religionists. They followed Moses. They knew their Old Testament better than you and me. But they thought they knew their Old Testament better than Jesus. They read their Bibles in a way that left them in the dark because they did not see how Scripture pointed to Jesus. And in that way, you know your Old Testament way better than they did. But they didn't see how Scripture pointed to Jesus, especially Old Testament prophecies like Isaiah 42, 6, where God tells his servant, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. I am the light of the world. That was about Jesus. To open the eyes of the blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Or again, Isaiah 49, 6, which we just heard read, I will make you as a light for the nations, he says to his servant, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Or Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Jesus is God's light for a world dead in the darkness. He is the ray of light from the sun of God's heavenly radiance. And following Him, listening to Him, obeying Him, turning from your sin to His righteousness, living your life behind Him, living in the light of His wisdom instead of yours or the world's, is the way to walk through life without tripping over sin time and again only to fall flat on your face. So young person, teen, listen to me. Following Jesus is the way to wisdom. It is foolish to walk outside in the pitch black darkness of night with zero light. That's not just silly. That's not just a game you play. That's dangerous. But Jesus says that people naturally live like that and think that they can see just fine while they're ignoring Jesus. Ephesians 4.17 tells us, warns us against just this. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, as the world does, in the futility of their minds. Young person, you are not missing anything by joining other young people in the world walking according to the futility of their minds. You are literally not missing anything. 
anything because it is futility to live like that. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They are ignorant. That's unaided human wisdom right there. Thinking it sees clearly in the pitch black darkness. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Darkened. See, the world says you have to quit following Jesus to experience enlightenment. Jesus says following Him is the only way to experience enlightenment. The Apostle Paul taught that God who said, light, let light shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Every time you see the sun shining down through the trees, the grass, onto the city, onto the road you're driving, God wants you to think of Jesus as the light that makes things visible for what they are. I appreciate light more and more the older I get. I'm really glad these lights are on. Otherwise, I would not be doing well right now because I could not see what I'm supposed to be preaching. God wants you to think of Jesus as the light that makes everything visible for what it is. God's Word, Psalm 119 says, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That is true of Scripture, and you should treat it that way. But God's Word became flesh in the person of Jesus, fully God, fully man, as we confessed in the Ligonier Statement on Christology. He is the image of the invisible God. So if you want someone to shed light on who God is, then Jesus is your God-man. He's the one for that job. He's the only one. He is God's light for seeing and knowing and appreciating God's splendor and radiance for what it is. And we all need God to shine His light into our hearts because left to ourselves, we are all naturally in the dark about God. So friend, ask God to shine the light of Jesus into your heart. Pray that he would dispel your heart's darkness about what Scripture means and about how you should be living in light of God and Jesus Christ. That is the only way to see the road from here to heaven. Stay with Jesus. Stay in what a scientist would call his Penumbra. I know you probably don't know that word. I'm going to explain it. A penumbra is that glow that's right outside a planet that is emitting light. It's not the planet itself. It's the light that's shining around the planet. You need to stay there. You need to stay in that light. You need to stay in that ray. You need to stay close to Jesus. You need to stay where his light is shining on your path. And that may mean 
that you need to change your path. Because Jesus is not on your path. You should be on his. That's the only way to see the road from here to heaven. And in heaven, there is no need of sun or moon to shine. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. Revelation 21. So you need to take stock. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? You realize, Christian, this is for you. Because every time you sin, you are veering off of that path into darkness. Every time you sin, you are wishing to extinguish the light of God, the light of Christ on your path. And you want to recede into the darkness to enjoy your sin. Now the Pharisees think they know whose side they're on. In verse 13, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They think they're on the side of truth. And humanity still doubts Jesus today. How can Jesus say such things about himself? Anybody can say anything about themselves. Just because I say that I'm the light of the world doesn't make it so. So we're skeptical. What, are we supposed to just take Jesus' word for it? Yes, we are. That is Jesus' answer in verse 14. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Jesus knows what he's talking about. Jesus knows who he is, even if they don't. In answer to their charge from verse 13, your testimony is not true. Jesus affirms here in verse 14, my testimony is true. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's his word against theirs, and they should take Jesus at his word. Why? Because in verse 14, I know where I came from and where I am going. He knows who he is because he knows the whole context of his identity claim. He came from heaven. He claims to be from heaven. He's going back to heaven when he rises from the dead. Jesus knows his own origin, and he knows his own destiny. Therefore, Jesus knows his identity. And they do not know his origin. They do not know his destiny. And therefore, they do not understand his identity. You do not know where I am from or where I go. They cannot know who he is because they do not acknowledge where he is from or where he is going. That's the starting point. If you don't take Jesus at his word that he is from heaven, you will get nowhere in your understanding of him. They admit neither his origin nor his destiny, so they cannot know his identity. But why do they not know his origin or destiny in the first place? Because, he says, you judge according to the flesh. You cannot know Jesus if you only judge him by the standards of this world, this life, and your human reason and expectations about who you think Jesus should be if you had created him. You judge Jesus by your standard. That's why you don't know him. That's why you don't understand him. That's why he confuses you because he does not care to conform to your standard. But you are trying to make him fit like a square peg in a round hole. And he will not 
So you are asking questions like, well, do I like what he says? Does that ring true? Is that convenient for me? Does he make it easy for me? Is he intuitive? Is this natural? Does he put me in the driver's seat with all the controls ergonomically arranged around myself for my convenience? Is Jesus useful to me? Does he help me get where I was already going in life before I met him? Does he enhance my image with people? Does he protect my power? Does he elevate my status, justify my pleasures, affirm my priorities, and give me what I want? Does he affirm my assumptions? Is he what I naturally expected him to be? Is he me, but with superpowers? Is he as nice and agreeable as I think he should be? Does he let me have my sin and enjoy it too? You judge according to the flesh if you judge Jesus like that. You're judging him according to your fleshly priorities and desires. You are using him to get what your flesh wants. And when he refuses, you are confused. But that confusion is not Jesus' fault. It's because you're not taking him for who he claims to be. You're taking him for who you would prefer him to be. And he does not agree to that arrangement. No, Jesus was divine before he was human. He was in heaven before he was on earth. He was your creator before he was your savior. He was holy before he took on our sin on his shoulders. And he came not merely to teach me how to be good enough for myself, but to be good enough for God in my place. That's what he came to do. He came to be good enough for God in my place. To share his sinless righteousness with sinners like us. He took on human flesh, not just to teach me how to live, but rather so that he himself would have a human body, flesh and blood, with which to die in our place for our sins as our substitute to take all of God's righteous wrath for all the sins of all those who will ever trust in him. And he came to rise bodily from the dead, the firstborn of the new creation, so that we might be united with him in a death like his, so that we might be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now you tell me, did you see that coming? Would you have ever guessed that salvation worked like that if someone hadn't told you? And if God had not shown into your heart with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus? Does it come naturally to the people in your office or that live as your next door neighbor? Does it come naturally to the guy on the treadmill next to you at the gym? No, it does not. And therefore, it would never have come naturally to you either. This is not the kind of Savior you would have ever expected to need if you had never read the Bible. 
not the kind of Savior the Jews were expecting, that's for sure. But Jesus knows who he is, even if you and I don't. Jesus is right about himself, even if you are judging him by the wrong standard. But what's Jesus mean when he says, I judge no one? What he means is that he didn't come into the world to judge the world, at least not the first time. He came for salvation first. He came to live the sinless life that we should have lived, and he did that in our place, on our behalf. And then he came to die in order to endure the curse of all of our disobedience to the law that he had obeyed perfectly. Judgment is for his second advent when he comes back. His first advent was for salvation from judgment. And the time in between is his patience waiting for us to turn from our sins, leading us to repent. And even if Jesus were to judge at his first advent, as his first coming, his judgment would be true because God corroborates both his testimony and his judgment. The Old Testament law the Pharisees were so keen to keep was itself very clear. The testimony of two is true. Well, Jesus testifies as God the Son and God the Father backs him up. So that's not just two people. It is two persons, but it is two divine persons. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Hey, if the testimony of two people is true according to your law, I've got you beat because I've got the testimony of two persons of the eternal divine trinity. Case closed. The prosecution must rest its case. How, though, does the Father corroborate Jesus' testimony? Well, through the miracles the Father gave Jesus to do and through the prophecies of the Old Testament Scriptures where the Father was testifying to the future coming of the Son, according to Jesus' words in the latter part of John 5. And notice, these are the very two things that modernists and Protestant liberals want to take away from Jesus. The foretelling of Messianic prophecy, oh, that couldn't have happened, kind of like we discussed in Sunday School with Daniel this morning. And many people think, oh, this is prophecy ex eventu, after the event, because it couldn't have been that accurate before, unless, of course, the modernists and the Protestant liberals are totally wrong, and the prophets really were foretelling And they want to take away the miracles of Jesus. Oh, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Jesus didn't really heal people. Lazarus wasn't really dead. But that, that mentality, according to Jesus, is not getting back to the historical Jesus. It is the gagging of Christ and God. It is to put a gag order on two persons of the Trinity to say your testimony does not qualify. We have to exclude your testimony from evidence. Because they are judging according to the flesh.
That is the height of arrogance. Of course, these scribes and Pharisees are as dull as Nicodemus at night. Where is your father? Excuse me, have you been listening to this whole conversation? From Jesus' response, it's as if they think he's talking about Joseph. Because Jesus immediately tells them, you don't know my father. They have already said they know Joseph. We know where this guy's from. He's the son of the carpenter. But why don't they know Jesus' real father? It's not why you think. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would also know my father. So notice the logic is not if you knew God, you would know me. That's not the logic. If you knew the father, you would recognize me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you knew who I were, you would know my father based on knowing me. Man, that is quite a confident argument. You don't know God the Father because you don't realize who I am. It's not that you don't realize who I am because you don't have your own personal relationship with God unmediated by me. It's the other way around. You don't know the Father because you're not coming to the Father through me as his only authorized ambassador from heaven, his Son. And since they don't acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God sent by God, they cannot know the Father who sent him. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We sang it earlier in the service. It's one of my favorite lines of any hymn. The Word in God, the Father one, the Father imaged in the Son. That's Christian. That is a Christian hymn. That is Trinitarian. A Muslim can't sing that. A Hindu cannot sing that. A modernist cannot sing it. A Protestant liberal can't even sing it. There are churches in Elgin who could not sing that song in good conscience and mean what we mean. Therefore, to know Jesus is to know the Father because they share the same nature and character as distinct persons subsisting in the same triune being. So when they ask Jesus of all people, where is your father? They only prove that they are still in the dark about Jesus and the father. Because they are judging Jesus according to their natural expectations, standards, and the desires of their own flesh. Now you realize what this means. It means you cannot know God at all. Unless you take Jesus at his word about himself. A Hindu cannot know anything about God as he is. Because they do not understand Jesus as he is. It is the same for Islam. It is the same for Protestant liberalism. That's not just me talking about Jesus spouting off my opinion from somewhere. That's Jesus talking about himself. You can have thoughts about who God is, 
But you cannot know him as he is unless you first know Jesus for who Jesus is. This is what makes every other religion false. Jesus is not just one of many gods as in Hinduism. He's not a mere human prophet as in Islam. He is not merely the most God-conscious and loving person who has ever lived as in Protestant liberalism. Nor is he a mere life coach to help us get what we wanted before we met him as in far too many American evangelical churches. Jesus is fully God, fully man, the eternal second person of the divine trinity, the image of the invisible God who took on human flesh to offer his body as our substitute to pay our penalty in our place for our sins. He died on the cross, rose bodily from the dead, he ascended to God's right hand, and he is now there in his glorified human body representing us to God as our great high priest and advocate God and man in one, the place where God meets man existentially and functionally. If you do not know Jesus like that, then you do not know who God is. You don't have a personal relationship with God if Jesus is not the one mediating it. Or better, you do have a personal relationship with God, and it is legal, it is judicial, and it is damning outside of Christ. So we should take Jesus at his word about himself. You cannot know Jesus by evaluating him with unaided human reason or with your own natural expectation of who you think a savior should be, what you think he should save humanity from. Jesus is telling us right here, you cannot judge him like that and arrive at the truth about him. You cannot comparison shop at the strip mall of world religions where you take all of your appetites and say, which one satisfies my appetite best? Which one do I like most? Which one makes me feel good when I put it on? You cannot arrive at Jesus as if he's the best value for the money, the most bang for your buck. It doesn't work like that. We take him at his word, and we follow him in order to enjoy his light. Otherwise, we remain in the dark about him and about everything. In verse 24, John stops to marvel with us a minute that Jesus is getting away with talking like this to people who wanted to arrest him and charge him with a capital offense. How was he getting away with talking like this? Because his hour had not yet come. God was sovereign over when and how Jesus would die. Jesus trusted that, and therefore he spoke freely without any fear of man at all. Christian, that goes for you too. God is sovereign over when and how you will suffer for him when and how you will honor him, and what kind of death. So in the meantime, live and testify boldly for Jesus. Because what do you have to lose but a life you can't keep anyway? You're not going to live forever. You will die. So die well and die for a good reason. Secondly, and more briefly, people need to know Jesus. People need to know Jesus. People don't know Jesus. Now people need to know Jesus in verses 21 to 24. When Jesus says he's going away, he's talking about his resurrection and ascension back to God's right hand in heaven. His critics here in John 8 are seeking to get him in trouble, to arrest him, even kill him. Jesus says one day they'll seek him so that he will save them, but by then it will be too late 
because they will die in their sins. He's saying the same thing here to the leaders as he said to the temple police when they tried to arrest him on behalf of the leaders back in 734. You will seek me and you will not find me. One day people will wish they had repented. They will wish they had turned from their sins to trust in Jesus. They'll wish they had believed. They'll want to turn from their sins and trust in Christ, but it will be too late for them. It'll be too late. The opportunity will have passed. The sun will have already set on the day of salvation. Night is coming when no man can work. Their chance to come to the light will be gone. They will die in the moral darkness they chose. The light will move to heaven. And they will get further and further away from those who are not following. They will be left to die in their sins. And they will have no one to blame but themselves. Friend, don't let that be you. The sun is already setting. The day of salvation has lasted 2,000 years. Who's to say Jesus won't come back tomorrow? Now, now is the time for you to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Now is the time to take Jesus at his word and to take him up on his offer. Friend, you should not assume that you will have the opportunity for a deathbed confession. God does not even owe you another breath. You know, every once in a while... I look at the ESPN app on my phone. I probably look at it too much. But every once in a while on that ESPN app, they'll say, some athlete died. Athlete just recently died at 26. You think he expected that? You don't expect to die. That doesn't mean you won't. And dying in your sins is final. I mean, you could die in your sins this afternoon. Jesus says to unbelievers, you will seek me and you will die in your sins. And there is no purgatory. It is appointed for a man to once to die and after that judgment. You die in your sins and you die in your judgment. No second chance after death. So don't procrastinate. Don't make excuses. This is not a game. It is eternal life or eternal damnation. So you should just quit the charade. Drop the front. Get real. This is real. Your soul is real. And your soul will last forever. God is real. Jesus is real. Heaven is real. Hell is real. The gospel of Jesus is real. The offer of salvation from the power and penalty of your sins, that's real. You can have it right now. It's free for the taking. But when you take it, you've got to switch sides from the world's rebellion to heaven's holiness, from lies to the truth, from evil to righteousness, from hell to heaven, from enjoying your sin to lamenting your sin. Of course, the Pharisees are still in the dark. They're wondering if Jesus is going to commit suicide since he said, where I go, you can't come. That's not at all what he meant. The cross was not suicide. The cross is judicial homicide, even deicide. It's the killing of God. But why then did Jesus say, where I go, you cannot come? He 
explains it in verse 23. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. They are qualitatively, morally, essentially different and particularly inferior. Jesus' home has always been heaven. That's where he's from, that's where he's going, because heaven is where Jesus is at home. Sinners are not from above. Sinners are from this world, from below in contrast with heaven above. They are from a world in rebellion against God, whether active or passive sins. And in verse 24, this is why he says they will die in their sins, because only Jesus is inherently fit for heaven. And only he can fit us for heaven. In ourselves, we are only fit for a rebellious world in this life and for hell in the next. We are not from heaven. We are from this world. And if God did not sanctify us, heaven would not be a place of enjoyment for us. It would be boring and annoying and offensive in our sinfulness. We are from this world, and this world is in rebellion against God, and it's condemned to judgment under God's righteous disapproval and wrath for all those who do not turn from their sins. So, friend, if you feel right at home in this world, trusting and chasing money as if it's your greatest possession and passion, if you feel right at home enjoying your sins, thinking well of yourself all the while, always thinking you know best, you're good enough, you're carried along by the spirit and logic of this age, trying to make Jesus fit in with your worldliness, then you will not feel at home in heaven. And you are not even headed there now. Jesus says in verse 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. People need Jesus because Jesus is from heaven and people are not. And only he can fit us for heaven. People need Jesus because only Jesus has been sent by God to achieve a righteousness that can cancel our sin. You will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am, who? What? If you do not believe that I am the one God sent from heaven, his only son, to take on human flesh and to live a sinless life and die a cursed death in our place for our sins. If you don't believe me, trust in me, bank on me, depend on me for who I say I am and for what I say I came to do, to transfer you from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of Christ, then if you do not believe those things about me, if you do not trust in me to do those things, then you will die in your sins and live forever under their condemnation in hell. It's one thing or another. It's all or nothing. Either you trust Jesus or you don't. Either you end up in heaven or you end up in hell. There's no in-between. There's no suburb of heaven. You're either in the celestial city or you're in hell. Just two ways, two ends, two destinies, no continuum. Now, if you're a critic of Christians, if you're one who says, I love Jesus, but I hate Christians because Christians tell other people they're sinners going to hell. Who wants to hear that? That's rude. It's annoying. Stop it. You're not fitting in. Don't you get this thing we're trying to do in America? We're trying to get everybody to get along together, and you're telling everybody they're going to hell if they don't believe what you believe. Stop it. 
But look at this. Jesus himself is telling self-righteous people that they are sinners going to hell. That's Jesus talking. You will die in your sins. Three times in just a few verses from Jesus' own mouth to religious people who think they should be good enough for anybody. Where I go, you cannot come. You're not coming with me to heaven because you, you refuse to turn away from your sins and trust in me. You realize, again, what this means. If you have a problem with the truth about hell, if you have a problem with people calling other people sinners and warning them to avoid hell by trusting in Jesus, it's not just that you don't like Christians. You don't like Christ. Where do you think Christians got that message from in the first place? Do you think we enjoy being ridiculed? Do you think we love sticking out like a sore thumb in a pluralistic society? We don't really particularly enjoy that. Do we like it when you spit in our face and call us ignorant and world haters? We get this from Jesus. Read the Bible. It will become clear really quickly that Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. But that didn't mean Jesus was unloving, did it? Not at all. It meant Jesus loved people enough to tell them the truth, to warn them of the danger they didn't realize they were in, and to risk their misunderstanding of him. That is love. Love wants to lead people from darkness to light. We talked about this at the youth retreat. If, if I see someone I love, well, let's just start with someone that I have a problem with. If I see someone I have a problem with standing in the road and there's a bus coming at 65 miles an hour from 100 yards away, <laughs> if I don't love them, I might think for a minute, <laughs> I could be rid of this person for the rest of my life. The loving thing to do is to yell at them and to tackle them out of the way of the bus. Now, if I yell at them and tackle them out of the way of the bus, and they get up and say to me, hey, why do you want to invade my personal space? Stop yelling at me and stop tackling. That hurt. I don't like being tackled in the pavement. Why did you do that? There's a bus coming. I don't believe in buses. Well, that kind of doesn't matter. There was a bus coming. That's how we want you, unbeliever, to understand us as Christians calling you to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. There's a bus coming. Even if you don't believe in buses, there's one coming. Let me set it straight for you. And it is not loving for us to engage with you in that pleasant fiction that God's wrath is not aimed at you and you are not a sinner, and God loves everybody no matter how sinful they are, and he doesn't require any change of anyone, that is a most pleasant fiction. But just because it's pleasant doesn't mean it's not fiction. The truth is you cannot hate Christians for the doctrine of hell without hating Jesus for the same thing. Christians got it from Jesus. Again, J.C. Ryle was right. It was Satan. It was Satan who said to Eve in the beginning, in the garden, 
Ye shall not surely die. You shall not surely die. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. You will die in your sins. And Satan is the one who says, you will not surely die. That's what you want to hear when you come to church. I'm not going to die. I'm not that bad. I should feel better about myself. Buck up, soldier. But Satan said, you shall not surely die. And J.C. Ryle says then, to shrink from telling men that except they believe they will die in their sins, to shrink from saying that to them, that may please the devil who said it first, but surely it cannot please God who loves sinners and wants to save them. Third and finally, people can know Jesus. People can know Jesus in verses 25 to 27. Therefore, they said to him, who are you? Still in the dark, yet Jesus' answer indicates that they could have and should have known who he was from all of his previous teaching about himself up to this point. They can, people can know Jesus based on his obedient and consistent teaching. Jesus said to them, from the beginning, what have I said to you? I have many things to speak and judge concerning you, but the one who sent me is true, and for my part, that which I hear from him, these things I speak to the world, that did not, they didn't realize that he spoke to them concerning the Father. So he'd been telling them from the outset of his earthly ministry who he was. We can and should know Jesus from reading the Gospels. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the light of the world. He is the good wine of the new covenant. He is the one who can give you God's spirit and a new heart. He's the one Moses testified about in the Old Testament. He's the bread of life. He gives the water of life in his spirit. He has the power to forgive sins. The light of the world is in him. You can, can and should know Jesus from his teaching and from the consistency of his life with his doctrine. So you can and should take Jesus at his word. But maybe we think that Jesus has been too hard on the scribes and Pharisees. He's talking now about them dying in their sins, implying that they're heading to hell without them even realizing it. Maybe that sounds harsh. Maybe Jesus went overboard. Maybe he overdid it. That's not what Jesus thinks. Not according to verse 26. Look there in verse 26 about how Jesus thinks about the proportion of his words of blessing to correction. Jesus has a lot more to say and to judge regarding them, implying that he's not even critiquing or condemning them as much as he could. He's got a lot more things to say that would convict them and correct them. What he's holding back on is not the blessing or his identity, but his judgment of them. That's what he's holding back. Even when he's told them three times in the same conversation as you're going to die in your sins. Yet the success of Jesus' earthly ministry was not to be measured by how many of his critics he could convert. Jesus' metric for success was faithfulness to speaking what his father told him to speak and doing what his father told him to do. No matter what Jesus' critics thought about him or about his teaching on God, the one who sent me is true. And Jesus knows that he only speaks what he hears his father saying. He's not lying about himself or about God or about the sinfulness of those who refuse to believe in him. And the proof he's not lying is that he laid down his life for the truth that he spoke. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. They will know him to be who he says he is, the Son of Man, coming on the clouds of heaven to receive a kingdom. Daniel 7, 
They will know that he is the God-man sent from heaven. He is who he says he is. When they hang him on the cross, when they lift him up to die, the cross will prove that Jesus is not out to become a success story in the world's eyes. And three days after that, after he has endured an awful death on the cross, they will know that he's the one God sent to live out a perfect righteousness in obedience to God's law. They will know that Jesus obeyed the law's command perfectly, endured its curse voluntarily in our place for our sins. They'll know that Jesus is the one, God's son, who came to do for us what we could not and would not do for ourselves. They're going to know. And right here, you already see that Jesus is already thinking about the meaning of his death. He already knows what his death will mean. It will be his full and final act of total submission to his father's plan to save a people for himself. The cross was not Jesus' idea. It was his father's idea. Jesus came to earth to take our humanity on himself because his father told him to and because he delighted to do his father's will because he's one with his father. And you see Jesus doing nothing on his own authority the night before the cross in Gethsemane where he prayed it verbatim, not my will but yours be done. That tells you everything you need to know about Jesus. He was not out for political influence or celebrity fame. He wasn't out to make it rich or invent something new that everyone would love immediately and that would make everyone love him. This is what the centurion discovered standing by the cross when he saw the way Jesus died. Surely, this man was the son of God. He knew it by the way he died. The cross, then, is what reveals Jesus for who he is. You want to know what Jesus is on about? You can look to his life and teaching, but Jesus himself says you won't really know just how loyal he is to his father until you watch him die as you read it in the Gospels. Verse 29, the cross proves that Jesus is not out for himself. He is out to do the father's will all the time, all the way, even when it, when it costs him an excruciating death as if he himself were a dying were dying in the shame and condemnation of his own criminal sins Jesus always does what pleases his father and the cross is what proves it ultimately and once you know who Jesus is through the cross then then you also know who God is then you know from Christ's cross that God the father is infinitely holy separate from sin, dedicated to the glory of his own righteousness and goodness and splendor, burning white hot against all that contradicts his righteousness. And yet he is also loving beyond our wildest comprehension, so loving that he sacrificed his only son, the one he loves more than anything else, in order to reconcile rebellious sinners like us to himself. Let us wonder. Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That light of that knowledge, of that glory, is in a face that dripped with blood on the cross. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is what illuminates God's justice, his love, his steadfast commitment to saving a people for himself. The cross sheds light on what God has been working towards ever since Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit. The cross is where the offspring of the woman 
Jesus, crushed the head of the serpent, Satan, by letting Satan bruise Jesus' heel in the crucifixion. Jesus shed light on what God has been up to all this time, what God is doing now in reconciling people to himself through the sacrifice of his son and gathering them into Christ's body in the churches. And he puts all that light not around us, but right into our hearts and minds, right where we need it most. Jesus doesn't just illuminate the world. He illuminates and warms your heart so that you see and feel God for who he is. God himself is light, not just love. And Jesus accurately represents God as the light of the world. And just as there is no darkness in God, there is no darkness in Jesus. Jesus reveals God as total truth, all righteousness, complete holiness, unmixed joy, persevering kindness, steadfast faithfulness to his promises, merciful by nature, all light, no darkness. And Jesus is the evidence. Jesus said three times in verses 21 to 24, you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins. You will die in your sins unless you believe in me. Unless you believe that I am he, that I am who, you will die in your sins unless you believe that I will die in your sins for you. Sinner, the sad and serious truth is that you and I both deserve to die in our own sins under God's righteous wrath and condemnation. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has died in our sins for us. And if we trust in his death to count for ours, we can escape God's righteous wrath and condemnation that we dread. God will count Jesus' condemnation on the cross as ours, and Jesus will present our souls to God, pure and innocent, washed clean in his blood, reconciled to God, and adopted into the Father's eternal family. That is the good news of the gospel. That is what God the Father sent Jesus, his son, into the world to do. He came to do for us what we could not and would not do for ourselves. He came to pay the debt we could never afford to pay. He came to take God's anger at us for our sins so God would no longer be angry at us. And so now we can look forward to spending an eternity with him in the new heavens and the new earth. So now, sinner, now, can you see Jesus for who he is? Are you still in the dark? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we pray now that for all those who still walk in darkness, young or old, shine into their hearts with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We pray for all of us in whom that light might have grown dim. Brighten it afresh, we pray. May we know and love and follow Jesus, the light of the world. May we walk with him, in him, after him. May we stay always in his light for his glory. In our lives and in this church, we pray. Amen.